Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. So, Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said... What will you give me if I betray him to you? Him, of course, is Jesus. They paid him 30 pieces of silver. Everybody say 30 pieces of silver. 30 Thank you. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him, or you could say a good moment to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. Everybody say, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed. And began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. So everybody say, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Say that too, as it is written of him. But woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. So everybody say, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. So really quickly, I have a couple of notes I want to give you. They are not the main things I want to talk about, but they are just worth mentioning uh, that you might miss. One, as I already kind of tried to point out, the other 11 guys say, Surely not I, Lord, Jesus says, I mean, Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi. I think that's deliberate. I think there's some sense in which his, I don't know, his posture towards Jesus is slightly different or something. You can, you can ponder that one at lunch, but I thought it was worth pointing out. And the other thing that I'll point out that you can ponder at lunch is 30 pieces of silver. I had you repeat that because it's significant, because in the Torah, 30 pieces of silver is what you pay someone if you kill their slave. And so it's essentially the price for the life of a slave, and this is the price that Judas receives for Jesus' life. And there's a few ways you could decide that's significant, and I'll let you chew on that over lunch, but I thought I'd point it out. So more central to what I want to say today is that I see this kind of pair of things interacting with each other in this passage. One of those is that Judas is presenting, a, in theory at least, a threat to Jesus' ministry, right? God is doing something in Jesus. Judas is going to betray him. We see that this is playing out, in, and he's accepted money and so forth. There's, there's a there's jeopardization, you would think, of what God is doing through Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, there's this idea that God is at work in this providential way to do stuff, God has a providential plan. God is sovereign. God is doing things. And for that reason, Judas is not actually a threat to what God is doing uh, in Jesus. Uh, I'm not someone who thinks every single thing that happens happens for a reason, that we can all accept everything from the hand of God as though God appointed that little detail to occur. Or if you have a bad 
is the thing happening, God made that happen. I don't, I don't understand God's sovereignty that way. But I do think it's important to get that God is doing stuff and we are not always the best judges of what that stuff is. We aren't able to see the full significance of a thing. We don't understand the, the God's eye view of things and that should shape how, we, how much we think we know about what's going on. In all probability, God is up to things in our circumstances and in the world that we are not set up well to understand. And so I think that's in this passage, I think that's in Matthew in general. And so because God has this thing, God is up to something, what would seem like a derailment of the Jesus movement turns out to be actually bringing about God's purposes, right? You have these hints. Jesus says, my time is near. What time? I mean, the time he's going to be crucified, betrayed and crucified. That time is approaching. Uh, there's, a, there's a ripeness to where we are in the story. He says, the Son of Man is going as it is written of him. That's in the scriptures, right? So, so there was a, a predetermination that this is how things are going to play out. So, so the things that are unfolding are not merely Judas doing something bad, right? It's, it's God's purpose being brought about the way God's bringing it about. Jesus has a God's eye view. There's also this other element, which is the fact that Jesus is betrayed and crucified at Passover. And that seems to have a sort of a timeliness to it as well. If you're not familiar, Passover is basically the main Jewish festival celebration. It is what Easter should be to Christians in theory and Christmas is to Christians in practice. So if you're going to go to church one time a year, you're probably going to go on Christmas, right? It's when everybody shows up. It's the big day. So Passover is like that, both I, think, I believe in modern Judaism, certainly in Second Temple Judaism, the period we're talking about. And uh, this, of course, if you recall, is a commemoration of the exile when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And uh, God sent Moses and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And so there were plagues and things. And the, the, the peak of the plague thing was the, uh, the death of the firstborn, right? That was the big plague. And so every Egyptian home had their firstborn uh, die. By, they, God sent the destroyer to claim those lives. And so the people of Israel protected themselves because they were instructed to uh, slaughter an unblemished lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doors and that caused the, the destroyer to pass over that home. That's hence Passover. So the, that, this is a holiday celebrating the blood of the lamb protecting God's people from destruction and that this is what they are coming to Jerusalem. People are streaming to Jerusalem from all around to celebrate that. And ultimately, while they're in town, while they're in town to sacrifice unblemished lambs um, as a celebration, as a remembrance of what God has done to save them, they walk past Jesus crucified. There's rich symbolic significance there, right? Because we believe that Jesus did lay down his life, was crucified, allowed himself to be sacrificed for us to be saved from destruction. I think it is easy as we live out our Christian lives sometimes to basically end up seeing Jesus as kind of our life coach in the sky or uh, being a Christian as alternatively merely a social justice movement or an ethical code or Jesus as merely a good ethical teacher and certainly I think uh, there are social justice implications to the gospel and uh, Jesus is a pretty good ethical teacher and he can help you with your life. 
So none of that's necessarily false, but the main thing is none of those things. The main thing is our dependence on his sacrifice for us. His death and resurrection is necessary for us to be saved from destruction. It is important that we not lose sight of that because the main thing has been settled. Even if we have problems or troubles or issues in our life, and I know that many of us do, the main thing has been settled. And everything else should be interpreted in light of that main thing. So I think all that to say that this happens at Passover is not incidental. There's There's a sense in which God is unfolding something very intentionally. And you see that Jesus himself is unfazed. He's announcing that someone's going to betray him, and the disciples are all freaking out. Jesus does not freak out. He's got the God's eye view, the way this story goes here. And Judas' betrayal of Jesus turns out to be bad for Judas. He's going to be judged. Does not threaten what God is doing through Jesus because of God's plan, God's uh, providence. So that is the first theme. The second theme is this incorporation of unlikely people and even random people. And so I hadn't really thought about this so much before uh, recent, just the last couple weeks. Um, but I wanted to think, talk a little bit about that rando in Jerusalem who hosts the Last Supper. Because I noticed when I was looking at the Greek text, and usually the translation says, I need to eat at the Passover at your house with my disciples. But really, house isn't in there. It's, I, if you take it very literally, I need to eat the Passover with you or in your presence. Um, and of course, that would mean at that guy's house. But we have every, it didn't strike me before, we have every reason to think this person and any family that he had was present at this meal. This is their Thanksgiving dinner, essentially. So basically, Jesus invited himself and 12 other guys over for Thanksgiving dinner, and then all this drama starts happening. He reveals someone's going to betray him. They're like, oh, it's not me, is it? He's like, well, no, but it's going to be really bad for the person who it is. And, and all this is unfolding. I am pretty funny. Thank you. <laughs> You're pretty great too, Wendy. Um, all of this is unfolding in front of like the people who are having dinner at their house. They are brought into this story in, in both a really awkward and in a really profound way, even though they're just total randos. We had, they're not named. It's not 100% clear to me whether Jesus even had a person in mind or just said, say to somebody. It's hard to say. Like, it's just some random unnamed people or person at least were there. And, and that's like subtle. It's not the main thing the text is focused on. But it was fun to think about. Like God brings randos into his story. Unremarkable or even unlikely or even scandalous people. So um, I, we generally like to use personal stories of some sort or other. And I decided, okay, what story do I have that has both the, the, uh, the providential plan of God, God being up to stuff in ways that we don't necessarily understand, and random people being incorporated into God's story? I realized I do have a story about that. Uh, it's a story that I told at this church once before, but it's been several years now. It was in my early, one of my early sermons here, so for a lot of you it'll be new. So there we go. Um, it's a pretty cool story. When, when I was uh, really pretty new in the faith, I had had this spiritual awakening with Jesus, and about four, five, six weeks later, um, 
I was, this is all in Seattle, and I was in the, involved in this ministry at this uh, low-income apartment building. I was telling Wendy this last week, so she already knows the story. Um, so we had, we were, we were like, you know, people in this building were either, some of them were transitioning out of homelessness, some of them were in a mental health outpatient program, some of them were in drug rehab programs, some of them were just not very, didn't have much money, and so they had to live in a low-income building. And there were many fine people that lived there, but as you can imagine, there were some characters, right? There are just some people that were unusual in one way or another. And um, I was at this building, you know, and we would give people plates and stuff if they moved in and they didn't have anything. And that was, you know, if they wanted to pray, we'd pray with them. So I was in this building, I was in the lobby of the building, and um, I came upon, in the lobby, this guy who had face tattoos. He was strung out on heroin. He was messing with his bike chain or something in the lobby. And we got to talking, and he, uh, I told him that I was there to, as part of this ministry. And, and so as soon as I mentioned that, he, he got this really troubled look on his face. And he said, man, there's demons in my apartment, and they're tormenting me. Looked really troubled. And, and I, again, have been walking with Jesus for a handful of weeks. So I said what came to mind. I said, okay, uh, I don't know much about that, but... Jesus can help you with that. And I have heard stories, you know, we, we talk about there being power in the name of Jesus, and I've heard stories where saying the name of Jesus does something. And I'm not kidding. As soon as that name left my mouth, this guy starts freaking out. And he goes, ah, you have to come bless my apartment. You have to bless it, make the demons go. He's running around, he's flailing. I mean, this is not, this is dramatic. He's flailing and running and yelling really, really loudly all of a sudden. And he takes off running through an open door that turns out to be his apartment door nearby. And he's running around inside the apartment screaming. I hear him through the wall. Got to bless it. Bless my apartment. And again, four, five, six weeks, I've been walking with the Lord. And I thought, I guess I'm going to go bless this guy's apartment now. So I go in there. Yes, amen. Uh, I go in there and the apartment looked and smelled like you would think a heroin addict's apartment looks and smells. There was another guy on a dingy mattress on the floor, also strung out on heroin, looking out of it. Um, and, and his friend is still running around, yelling, flailing, screaming that I need to bless his apartment. So I did. I said some prayer. I didn't know what to say. I said something. God, come bless his apartment. And, and eventually the guy did calm down, did, did chill out a little bit, prayed for the guy. And then I eagerly left because I was ready to be done with that particular experience. And I had no, other than the fact that the guy did calm down, I had no sense that anything had taken place in the spirit. I just said what came to mind and then it was like, okay, son, good, I'm going to go now. <clears throat> Where the story gets interesting is about a year and a half later, I was at church, it was a storefront church. We had had our service, we were sitting around afterwards, some of us on the couches, talking in front of a big window because it's a storefront. And this couple comes in. They're uh, folks who appear to live on the street, a uh, guy and a gal. And they were interested in what we were there for. And we just got to talking uh, about, you know, what our, what our church does. And they were interested in coming the next Sunday for the service and whatnot. And the guy in the couple kept looking at me funny. And he says, I know I've seen you somewhere. And we were trying to figure it out like you do. Are you involved in this? Would I have seen you here? 
couldn't figure it out. And then eventually it clicks for him. And he says, I know where I've seen you before. About a year and a half ago, when I had just gotten out of prison, I was strung out on heroin. I was on the mattress in my buddy's apartment. At a low point in my life, feeling like total garbage, not sure what to do, just everything was chaotic and a mess. And all of a sudden, I look up, and I see you praying for my friend, and I just knew I needed to commit my life back to God, and I needed to make some really big changes, and that has been a really big part of, of me making some, you know, changing my life and going in a really positive direction. It really made a difference. Now, I didn't even talk to the guy. I barely noticed him. I had no idea what I was doing. I just wanted to deal with this screaming person as best I knew how. I had no sense that anything meaningful had occurred. So in, in one sense, I'm the rando in this story. And in another sense, my buddy is the rando in this story. And God just decided that that day he was going to come into this person's life and do something profound. And, the, and this couple did end up becoming our friends and became part of the church. They got married. They got baptized. Uh, some parts of the story were not so good, and that's for another day. But, but God acted powerfully kind of just because he decided to. And if I hadn't run into this guy a year and a half later, I would have never known. So I suppose the takeaway there is, number one, uh, if there's an area in either your life or in your world, and you know, if you feel that way about this community, this church, where maybe things aren't playing out quite the way you imagined, or in the country, maybe you feel that way in, in the world in some area or other, uh, whatever it is, you may feel like it is hard in this area of my existence to see God at work. It is hard to understand how God is doing something good in this. God may be up to something that would surprise you. And also, if you have any sense that God is not going to do something significant through you, God does do that. I guess that's the takeaway. God uses randos like us to do really cool things. And we don't always even know that God is doing it. And so I hope that that offers encouragement. I hope that it also offers you a certain sense of expectation. I think sometimes we can, we can get into this thing where we're just living out our lives as Christians, not expecting God. You know, When I was new, I really, really thought God would do something cool any moment. And after a while, it can become routine. And it's just, oh, you know, I'm just going to go to church and then can't wait for it to be over so I can go get lunch and then go back to whatever I was going to do instead or go through my day and just try to get my to-do list checked off. A number of ways this would apply. But I, I think that this set of things I'm talking about today should encourage us to expect God to do something wonderful. We have every reason to expect that God is up to stuff even if we don't see it, and that God is up to stuff through us, even though we don't feel it. So, uh, if Josiah is still around, if he would back me up with some, some playing, some worship, I appreciate that. Uh, there's going to be a few of us over by the base of the stairs here, and if... I could see how a few different things might be evoked for you by what I've said today. If you 
have an area that feels like God is not, you know, either God dropped the ball, not up to something, needs to be up to something and isn't, and you want to pray with somebody about that, some of us will be over here, people that are safe, that, are, that you can feel comfortable praying with, or if you know somebody uh, else that you want to pray with, you can pray with them. Uh, also, if, uh, if you do feel like you'd be interested in talking more, I was talking about uh, being covered in the blood of Jesus and saved from destruction. If you want to talk about that, if you're not already committed to Jesus, and that's something you would consider that's interesting to talk more about, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Someone else over here would be happy to talk about that, maybe pray about that. So I want to invite that as well. Harry's point, what are you pointing at? Troy has a word. Troy. Come tell me what you're thinking about. I just had that sense in terms of, of the door, uh, the door image that Troy was talking about, that um, the need for courage and uh, about the fear that I lo- you're going to lose something. Um, I just think the Lord wants to, know, to encourage you that you're not losing anything. So, thank you. Yeah. So if any of that resonates with you and you'd like to pray with somebody or talk with somebody, um, you can either find someone you know here or you can come talk to us over there right now. And uh, otherwise, I just say bless you guys. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and um, may you expect God to do wonderful things.